Amen. Amen. I love that. The fact that when the death of Jesus, the veil dropped, and we all, all of us, all of us could come freely into the presence of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever seen the show Antiques Roadshow. Have you guys ever seen that show before, Antiques Roadshow? I used to love that. Of course, it was back before we had cable, you know, and so it was like, you had like five things to choose from, but I still loved, the, I loved it. I'm going to show you a picture here of something from Antiques Roadshow. Now, we're, when, you, when you see this in just a minute, it is the most expensively praised, the most valuably praised item they've ever had come. It's actually a collection. What these are, these are bowls from China, intricately carved bowls, dishes, cups, carved from rhinoceros horns. Rhinoceros horns. Can you imagine this? Look at this intricate carving here. And so this collection was appraised at $1.5 million dollars. So amazing, this guy from Oklahoma, he'd just been collecting these things. I think he had some uh, idea of the value just from a couple that he'd collected, but he had collected them back in the 70s and 80s, and these are from 17th century China, and incredibly valuable. Now, if you've seen the show before, you'll have people that come in, they're extremely excited about what they've brought in, and then it ends up being $50, you know, and usually it's because there's an expert that... Um, knows the exact appraisal amounts of some of these items, and he knows what to look for for the authentic article. There might be something that's a knockoff, or maybe it's a piece of furniture that may look like an old Chippendale furniture piece of furniture, or something that may be a a valuable piece of this or that from ancient whatever. Uh, But then there's a knockoff of it. And there's always distinguishing marks that help you realize what is the authentic article, what is the genuine article and so today what we're looking at in the book of acts chapter 2 at the end of chapter 2 starting in verse 42 is we're looking at the genuine article of what a church is to be you know we're in the midst of this sermon series called the beginning and it's called the beginning because it is the beginning of the church the first century church and as we're in the midst of as a church as a local body of christ uh, walking through a vision process what does god have for our future It is very valuable for us to go back to the book of Acts, to the first century church, and say, what were the practices of the first century church? And so specifically today, we're looking at those practices. How can we know if our church models, resembles the genuine article of what a local church is to be? So we need to go back to the first century church and say, what are the practices? What are the practices of a genuine article church? Let's pray. Lord God, as we... Come this morning to your word. Help us to have an open mind as we come. We are always to come with an open mind saying, God, what is it that you'd have for me uh, today? What is it that you would say to me? And Lord, at times, what are things in my life that need to be confronted? What do I need to be challenged with? How do I need to be encouraged? And so, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds, uh, as we come today, as we come every day, during this time, as, and also as we come to your word in our individual Bible studies, that our hearts, our minds would be open to whatever it is that you'd have to say, and that, Lord, we would have the courage, we would have the courage to carry it out. Whatever it is that you've called us to do, Lord, would we trust you daily to do that very thing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, oftentimes when you are presenting um, just anything you might speak about in a context like this, or maybe you have to present something Uh, At your job, you might have to present something at a civic organization that you are uh, involved in. One of the great ways 
of presenting or speaking is to present uh, the, the kind of outline of what's known as a problem, solution, benefit. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe it was something you were trained in and you knew, okay, one day I'm going to have to stand uh, in a board meeting or one day I'm going to have to stand before this civic organization or whatever. And so maybe in, in public speaking, they kind of gave you this as a real simple outline, problem, solution, benefit, problem, solution, benefit. And it really is a valuable tool. And I think it would be a great thing for us to look at today related to this specific topic. So, of course, the main thing that we're looking at today is what are the practices of a genuine Christian church? So what, if, we could, if we could relate this pro- problem, solution, benefit outline to what we're doing today, you know, the problem might be is that in any local church, frustration sets in. Frustration sets in in a local church when we feel like we're just kind of going through the motions of church life. And we feel like we're accomplishing little for the kingdom of God. So frustration can set in, the church as a whole, the life as an individual, when we feel like we might just be kind of going through the motions of church and accomplishing very little for the kingdom of God. So then what's the solution to that? And that's where we'll camp out in large part today. The solution to that is that we look back at the first century church and we look at what are the principal items, what are the principal practices of the first century church and how can we replicate those today or make sure that we're replicating those today and so then what's the benefit what's the benefit to you let me tell you what God if we're a believer in Jesus Christ God has made us to live within to grow within to live our Christian life within Christian community known as a local church because the place that as I say quite often we're challenged and encouraged to grow in our relationship with Jesus And we're locked arms on a mission, on a mission to take the good news of the gospel to the entire world. So that should be a thrilling experience. So here's the benefit to you. If we live these things out, if we practice the practices of a genuine Christian church, your life, you have a thrilling and fulfilled life. Because you are part of a church that is really making a difference in the lives of people and making a difference for the kingdom of God. Is it the only thing that makes life thrilling and fulfilled? No, of course, there's plenty of other things. Family, friends, uh, just the good things of God's grace in our world. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, a large part of the the thrill and fulfillment of life should be as we together as believers accomplish, accomplish the work of the Lord as we're called to do. Working together, arm in arm, to carry out the mission of the Lord. So... When we think about what are the practices, the genuine practices of a, of, a, of a healthy church, of a genuine church, we have to go to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And it says this, and with many other words, that is he being Peter, I'm starting in verse 40, I'm going to back up a couple of verses. If you remember from last time, the Holy Spirit came upon them, a huge crowd was gathered, and, and Peter, this one who was just given to shooting his mouth off, saying things, having to kind of you know, reel it back in. You ever feel like you're in that place of life where you say something, you're like, man, I wish I had a fish hook and a reel on that and could just reel that right back in. You feel like you need a shoehorn to get your foot out of your mouth, right? That's Peter. That's how he lived his life. But this Peter who was brash, sometimes arrogant, shoot his mouth off, probably didn't have a great, uh, you know, he, people trusted him to some degree, but probably people said, okay, what's Peter going to say today? Well, Peter stands up there and gives this incredibly impassioned sermon because he has the whole power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And he preaches this incredible sermon. And we see thousands of people came to know Christ. 
And so we see this kind of uh, close of this last portion here in the opening of what we see today. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them. He challenged them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those uh, gladly re- who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day were about 3,000 souls added to them. And then we get to our principal passage today, starting in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's why you'll often see this particular verse, 42, will either be preached at the end of the last section or preached at the beginning of this section, as we'll do today, because it, it very well could be a both and of a of kind of a punctuation point on the last passage as well as an entry point into what we see today. And so we see that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, this kind of reverential awe, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, just as we see in the previous chapter. The Holy Spirit is working through the apostles to do incredible signs and wonders so that people of the world know that this message that these ones are speaking, they're going to speak this message. We know the message to be the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come to this world to save us. This message has validity. It's real. Signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And and those added to the Lord, they were added daily, those who were being saved. And so the first thing that we see, when you think about what are the practices of a genuine Christian church, the first thing that we see is regular instruction and training. In my version here, it says doctrine. Some of them might say training, or some might say instruction. Basically, what it means is that it's, it's formal and informal teaching of what, the, what Scripture has to offer, not only how we honor the Lord with our life, but also how we are equipped for the mission that we're given. So we see in the, the original language here, we see a, a nature of this being formal and informal, as I mentioned. So it's not just a matter of sitting around and we sit kind of in this sort of classical lecture style in which one teacher is classically lecturing to another. There's obviously a place for that. We see preaching in the first century church. We see small gatherings, not only of how Jesus practiced, but also the apostles practiced where there was one teacher speaking. But we see plenty of instances as well where they were just living life together and teachable moments came about. And whether it was Jesus or whether it was one of the apostles, Uh, took that opportunity to give instruction on the scripture, instruction on God's character, instruction on what it means to live a life that honors the Lord and brings fulfillment and joy and happiness, instruction on what it means to be equipped so that we might better live out this mission to what God's called us to. So regular instruction and training. We also see kind of a hint within this original word of this instruction or training or doctrine as you're as your uh, versions might say, it, there's a hint of despite difficulty. Despite difficulty. So again, it leads us to believe that this was not only formal, but informal training. As they were living life, they were trying to put these things into practice. And isn't that the nature of faith? Isn't that the nature of, of living out what God's called us to do? 
theoretically, we can say, yeah, I would adhere to this and what you know, God says in his word about this particular situation I might face in my life or face at work. I have this choice, this decision to make, and I know the world tells me to do this, or this seems like the easier road, or this is what my friends might tell me to do, or this is what my heart might tell me to do. But God tells me to do something kind of diametrically different. And it comes to that point where despite that difficulty of kind of swimming upstream or taking the, lo- the road less traveled, if you will, we have to trust God. And we have to say, God, you know what? Everything I see around me from culture I see it reinforced uh, on TV. I see it reinforced with my thoughts of my friends. I see it reinforced at work when we have conversation. All of it says this. But God, I feel like your word tells me this. And God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Isn't that where the rubber meets, meets the road of faith? Is that we know what God's word says. And we put it into practice. At times, despite difficulty. So they were... Uh, engaging in regular instruction and training, not just lecture style, but they were together, they were living life together, and they were looking for these teachable moments about what does God's word say. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in this next section here. But isn't it so refreshing? You think about those relationships, excuse me, that you've had in church life in your past. And some of those relationships where you know that, that, that person, that, that guy or that girl that you had a good relationship with, they, they're the type that whenever you're together, it's just refreshing. It's almost like the book of Proverbs uh, where, they, where it talks about the, the wellspring of life coming from the words of, of Scripture. And just the more they speak, you just love to be around them because they don't have a coarse word to say. They're not the type that's complaining. They're not the type that's gossiping where you just kind of feel uncomfortable around them. But you feel so comfortable because they're just looking for opportunity to speak the eternal truth of God's word into your life, to to, to, to remember what God's word says. It is so refreshing. And that happens in the context of what we'll see next. The next practice that we'll see also in verse 42 is fellowship. Fellowship or sharing life. Sharing life. The reason I think it's important, as you'll see on the point on the screen, we call it sharing life, is because I think in our particular context of 2016, the 21st century, that's almost a better description, an apt description of what we see of what that word fellowship really means. It means that there, it's far more than just kind of getting together for coffee and donuts, right? Oftentimes we'll call those things fellowships or get-togethers in a church. But true fellowship is that we are sharing life together. You know the verse that I, I quote quite often, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. It says, as, uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It means that if, we're, if we are going to grow and we're going to encourage and challenge one another to grow, we have to be willing to sharpen one another. We have to be willing to challenge one another. We have to be willing to encourage one another. And that only happens when we are regularly sharing life. 1 Corinthians 1.9 kind of sheds light on this because the same word is used, not in context of our relationship within the church one to another, but our relationship with Jesus Christ. And God through the Lord, uh, God the Father through his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says this. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, uh, fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, there are so many benefits, the benefits of salvation that we receive. But one of the great benefits that, that we receive here, and I think is exactly what this word fellowship is alluding to, is this intimacy. This intimacy, 
That is the entire uh, meaning of the song that we just heard, Let the Veil Down. Not to get into this context uh, again, but it's, it's one of my favorite, if you've heard, heard me say it before, it's one of my favorite contexts in all of Scripture. We know that the Old Testament sacrificial system uh, was, was set up to, to kind of delay punishment of sin, if you will. It never completely took away sin. The book of Hebrews says that. And even the temple itself drew a very clear picture that man was separated from God. Because we know that the, the most inner portion of the temple was known as the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil, a thick veil that hung there. And no one could go in except for one person. It was the high priest and he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. But everywhere else, the presence of God did not dwell with man. But as we know in the progressive revelation and redemption of God, he shows us at the moment Christ, at the moment Christ was crucified and died upon the cross, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, and it visibly, powerfully showed us that now there is no barrier between man and God. We have intimacy with God. That's the same word that is used to speak of our relationship one to another. It doesn't mean that we just kind of gather for coffee and donuts and call that fellowship. We should be sharing life together. Now we know that we can't in the context of a church like this, the context of any uh, church of any size, you can't have that sort of intimate relationship with every single person. We should have unity, of course. We're called to unity and we're called to know one another. We're called to all put our hand on the rope and, and pull together for the common mission of seeing people come to know Christ and grow in faith. But you will have particular relationships in the context of a local church that should be deep and intimate relationship for the purpose of spurring one another on towards spiritual growth. What does that require? It requires authentic relationships. We have to have authentic relationships. What does an authentic relationship look like? First of all, it means significant time. We can't just be kind of like passing like ships in a night. We have to make time to spend time with one another. It also means that it will grow into transparency. Transparency. We know as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been made new, we've been born again, but the old sin nature still hangs around. And we battle temptation to sin each and every day. We have to have a relationship in which we can air our sinful failures with one another. We can know that I can come to a brother in Christ, or if I'm a lady, come to a sister in Christ, and I can share with them, here are my failures, help me, pray with me. Pray with me, hold me accountable. What can I hold you accountable to? Because our goal is to grow together in Christ. Significant time, transparency, authentic relationships also look like conversations with purpose. I alluded to that just a moment ago. Haven't we had that friend? When we had that friend, I'm thinking of a particular person. When you're always around them, it's all, they always have a word of the Lord. They're not looking to do it on purpose. They're not looking to show their Bible knowledge. They're not looking to know how much more of the Bible they know than they have memorized than you. It's because their life is full of it. And they know their life is full of the Word of God. And they know that this particular passage relates to this particular issue in life. And they know it matters. It matters far more than any guru we might see on the TV or any book that we might read of someone that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. This is the eternal Word of God. And they know, let me bathe your life with this. This is a particular difficulty you're dealing with. Here's what God's word says. Trust in him. 
Trust in him. He, he makes this promise to you. Yes, life might be difficult, but this is a promise that he makes to you, and I'll help you. I'll pray with you. Let me be there with you, brother. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. I alluded to the 25, the second portion of this verse just a moment ago. But it says this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Consider there means, don't we just kind of a flashing moment in our head. It means that we are focused on another person. We should have relationships in the local church where there is someone that we are thinking about. How can I be a servant to this person or to that person? How can I spend significant time with them? And how can I stir them up or spur them on to good works? And then it continues on into verse 25, which I use quite often. Not forsaking the assembling together of our assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, challenging one another. And so much the more as you see the day, the return of the Lord approaching. This puts to death the notion of any sort of Lone Ranger Christian. Someone that's saying, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, but I don't, I don't need the church, right? I'm a Christian, my relationship is just between me and the Lord. No, God has created it, God has designed it. Jesus' intention for it is that we are to grow together in community. He says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to grow and we grow best in the midst of community. One more thing about this fellowship, this sharing life, is that mission leads to fellowship. Mission leads to fellowship. One of the, sheer, or one of the quickest ways that we can get and one of the most effective ways that we can have true sharing of life and fellowship in our lives is to be on mission together. If that might sound cyclical to you, then fine. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. We gain fellowship when we share mission, when we all have our hand on the plow, hand on the rope, and doing the mission together. I love what this particular pastor and author says, Matt Carter, I've shared this in a different context before as well. But he says, when we aim for community, and he's using that word similarly to how we might use fellowship, when we aim for community, we get neither community nor mission. See what he's saying? When we make community or fellowship our number one goal, then we might miss out on true fellowship because we never go below the surface level. And we might miss out on mission, what we're called to do as well. But he says, when we aim for mission, we get both we get both and i know many of you can give instances of where you've practically seen that play out someone that you may not know too well in the church maybe you see him across the across the aisle here on sunday morning or maybe you see him passing you might say hi but you can remember an instance where you've gone to a particular mission trip or a mission project or maybe you served in a particular mission ministry on a regular basis and you know there is something about just kind of nose to the grindstone, hand to the plow of, of doing the work of the Lord that bonds two people together like nothing else. When you're doing that work together and there is just this inseparable bond that happens on that particular mission trip. Now it doesn't mean, again, that that's the only place that it can happen on a mission trip, but what it reminds us is that when we aim for mission, we get community, we get fellowship as well. Why do you think they were so bonded together in the first century? They were so bonded together in the first century because they were, they were wholeheartedly, passionately carrying out the mission of God in the face of persecution, in the face of great trial and trouble. 
And so there was nothing that bound them together like sharing that mission and carrying out that mission for the Lord. So we see not only regular instruction and training, sharing in life in verse 42, but also in verse 42 we see remembering Christ's sacrifice. That's a portion of verse 42 that says breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. They're carrying out that Lord's Supper, whether they, and, and, and oftentimes they did it as part of a regular meal in the home, and we see that kind of reinforced a little bit later in the passage. But they were remembering Christ's sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. They were remembering, why are we here? When, when they joined together, however often they practiced the Lord's Supper, it was a time for them to remember Christ's sacrifice so that they could remember, this is why we were here. We're not here to gather just to kind of come together in, in, in some sort of social club. We are here because Christ sacrificed for us and we are to go out and tell everyone of, of that incredible sacrifice of Christ and how he is the answer to the trouble of their life. He is the answer to the greatest trouble of their life, that lack of fulfillment, that lack of purpose in life because they are far from God. They're far from him. So we are to remember Christ's sacrifice. Also, we see not only did they remember Christ's sacrifice, but in verse 42, again, in that sort of summary verse, we see also that they were diligent in their prayer. Diligent prayers. And we will see, as we walk through the book of Acts, we will see what incredible level of diligent prayer they had. Because, again, they were on mission together, and they needed to call out into the Lord. I love E.M. Bounds. I've used him quite often whenever I speak about prayer and this is one of my favorite quotes of his. Some of you may have it written down already from a previous message. I think it uh, is worth saying once again, it's so good. No learning can make up for the failure to pray. No earnestness, no diligence, no study, no gifts will supply its lack. Now, you think about this in the context of our local church. We're obviously called to study. We're called uh, to earnestness, passion. We're called to be diligent to what God has called us to do. We're called again to study. We're called again to, to use the experiences and the spiritual gifts that we've been given. But there is nothing that will supply the lack of prayer in the local context of a church. Why is that? Because when we pray, when we say, God, we can do nothing aside from you. There's no cleverness. There's no amount of creativity. There's no amount of this or that that we can kind of concoct on our own. To, Lord, see, see you move and your Holy Spirit move in an incredible way to see people come to know Christ, grow in their faith. There's no way we can see that happen on our own. We are not creative enough, no one is, to make that happen and manufacture that. God, we need you. We need you to do a work. And when you do a work, you receive all of the glory. That's the essence of prayer. And we say, God, you do the work. God, we are willing servants. We are humble and willing servants. Whatever you call us to do, we will do it. But Lord, may you work in a mighty and powerful way. And when you look at the book of Acts, when you look at this first century church, they were sailing along on prayer because they knew they could do nothing else outside of the power of God. It's a reminder of that. Diligent prayer. Not only diligent prayer, but we see here in verses 44 and 45, let's read it again, we see personal sacrifice. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them as, among all as anyone had need. Now this isn't some sort of uh, first century uh, communal living or anything like this. They actually, and you see it reinforced in the end of chapter 4 of the book of Acts, 
that there seemed to be this nature of ongoing selling. So the people withheld their, or didn't withhold, but people had their own possessions. They had their own possessions, but they were extremely open-handed in selling whatever needed to be sold so that they could help their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They were incredibly open-handed. And what it means is, is that we have to do the same. We have to be ones that are willing to personally sacrifice. Because we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice. And we're reminded of all that we have, whether it be uh, our, our financial resources or whether it be the t- our time, that all of that belongs ultimately and is a gift from God. And so we have to be willing to personally sacrifice for the collective of the church and also for individuals. So it means that we are ready to say, if there's a brother or sister in legitimate need, that let me help you. And we're not trying to constantly think, well, gosh, if I help them today, what, how in the world, how, how am I going to make this happen or that happen? We trust them, we help them, and we allow God to take care of us. We allow God to take care of us. I remember, and I've shared this story before, a wonderful man that I used to work with, uh, head of maintenance at a church. I've shared him, about him before, James Williams. And I just remember his sacrifice. That I knew this man couldn't have made a whole lot of money. But his, willing to just, his willingness to just be open-handed and sacrifice when someone had a need. When someone had a need. And he never went without. He never went without. He knew that the Lord would take care of him. Because once again, when they lived in a constant state of personal sacrifice, it was an ongoing pledge to the Lord that I trust you. I have faith in you. And so we as a church must be willing to be open-handed to help a brother and sister in need. Not only this, but we see in verses 46 and 47, we see that they had this incredible spirit of gathered celebration. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor, favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had this gathered celebration. Just like we do today, we gather together. Um, when we come together in worship, as we say quite often, we don't do worship here um, uh, ultimately. Ultimate worship is not happen here. This is an outpouring of a life lived in worship. So we live our lives in the Romans 12, 1 and 2 sort of a model that we are offering up our bodies and by proxy our lives to God as a living sacrifice, meaning we say, God, every bit of who I am today is yours. It belongs to you. You do it with, with my life what you will. And that is our act of worship. And as we do that, we gather together on Sunday morning to celebrate, to celebrate that same sacrifice that we're all making daily. We live a life of worship, and then we come together for corporate worship. They gathered together. They gathered in the temple for that worship, for praising God. They gathered also, as we mentioned just a minute ago, for prayers. We know we see that in Acts chapter 3, that prayer life was a regular part of their life. So they gathered together for that gathered celebration. Also, we see something implied, not only from the Great Commission and the great scope of that Great Commission in Acts 1.8, that you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We see evangelism is implied. Or sharing their faith, sharing their faith was implied. See, they went to the temple because they wanted to be around the people. They went to the temple not just for celebration and for worship and for prayer, but they knew that is where the people would be. 
They went there to share. They went there to see, as we see in Acts chapter 3 and 4, that God did an incredible work in healing certain people, and it gathered a crowd. They were able to, to speak about this incredible Jesus, this one who came to save them. So they were sharing their faith. So what do we get from it? What do we get from it? If we are a church that is regularly practicing, and as you as an individual are part of a church that is regularly practicing, therefore you are regularly practicing, if we're practicing this regular instruction, this sharing of life, this remembering of Christ's sacrifice, diligent prayer, personal sacrifice, gathered celebration, and we are in, in evangelism sharing our faith, what do we receive? What do we receive? Well, again, in verses 46 and 47, it says, So they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and in breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness, and simplicity of heart. They were full of joy. They were full of gladness. What is the most basic psychological motivator in humanity? Now we know obviously certain people unfortunately are there just scrambling for food and water, the basic necessities of life. People all over this world this very moment are scrambling for those basic necessities of life and so that is the most basic motivator in their life. But for most uh, in a country like this, in a community, a society like this, what is the most basic psychological motivator for any person? When you just kind of, when you just kind of reduce it to the, to the most irreducible form, it is happiness. They want to be happy. They want to be happy. They want to be fulfilled. They want to have purpose, but they want to be happy. We receive happiness, we receive joy, we receive peace, we receive gladness when we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we live a life that is daily devoted and committed to him, we receive just as they receive, we receive that daily gladness, joy, happiness of life. Now that may seem like, man, that's really dumbing it down, isn't it? That's just really just kind of reducing it to the most basic level, and that just seems kind of Shouldn't it be more lofty than that? Obviously, we live out our life um, and, and we live the Christian life of sacrifice for God's glory. That is the number one reason we do it, so that we might glorify God in all that we do. And we remember the sacrifice of Christ. We do it out of gratitude. But here's the wonderful benefit that we receive as well. We receive that very abundant life that Jesus promised to us. We receive a life of gladness and joy. It doesn't mean that life is, is free from any problem and difficulty, but what it means is that we are able to navigate those difficulties in life because we are allowing God to navigate those difficulties in life. And through it all, through it all, we have gladness, joy. Also simplicity, simplicity. Isn't so much of the human life just feel like we're striving? Just striving, we're just trying to make things happen, we're just... We're just striving to climb the ladder at work or we're striving to make this happen or we're striving to try to find significance in life. We're just striving to get to the next day. If I can just kind of just get up the next day and just keep going, just kind of reset my week and just kind of get going again. And we're just striving. They had this simplicity, this simplicity that just, again, led to this joy of life. They had simplicity because they knew exactly what their purpose in life was. They knew exactly what their mission was. They were there. They were there to glorify God in life. And they were there to share the same change that had taken place in their life. They were to share this mission. They were to share this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had simplicity, 
gladness. And they had a great reputation. They had a great reputation. The, their, their places of work or business, the town, whatever it may be, wherever they hailed from, they had great reputation because they knew there was something different about that person. Like there goes John again, and there's something different about him. You know, I don't know if I'd ever admit it, the, the town person might say, but man, my life is just full of, of just boredom. My life is full of striving. My life is, is, is full of difficulty and pain. But man, there's something different about him. What in the world is that? What is that? They had good reputation. And then we also see the benefit, the greatest benefit of all. The Lord was adding to those daily, those who are being saved. You see, our job is simply to share, but it's God that saves. Our job is simply to share, but it's God that saves. What an incredible benefit that would be in our lives, in the life of our church. And I think the average Christian misses so much. So much thrill, so much joy, so much wonder in their lives simply because we are not engaging in the most basic thing that we're called to do, which is to share, share about the Savior that saved us. We receive gladness, simplicity, wonderful reputation, and God saves people in our midst. You see, again as we close, that benefit, if you will, that benefit, if you will, is your life, your life. If we carry out as a church and you, as you do your part as a member of this local church to practice the practices of a genuine article church, the genuine thing, we will share in life together a thrilling and fulfilled life as a church because we're part of a church. We'll know that we're part of a church that is really making a difference in the lives of people and making a difference for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we come now and as we look at this early church, we look at this first century church, we pray that we would look collectively, we pray that we would look individually with an honest eye at our own hearts, at our own motivations, at our own practices, and the practices of us collectively as a church. And we would be willing to say, God, are we practicing exactly what you would have us do god are we settling for those things that may seem like good practices good things that we can be engaged in but we are are we missing out on all that you have for us because we're settling for things that are good god we pray that that takes a high level of courage for all of us individually it takes a high level of courage for us as a church to say what is it that we need to be doing? What exactly is it that we need to be doing for your kingdom? So God, I pray that you would give us that great clarity, that great courage. And Lord, that we would experience that thrilling life of obedience, that thrilling life of living all for your glory, your honor, and not our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come now